I will admit to you that when I came to Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church for the first time six years ago, I never heard that song, that hymn. And uh, as I came to learn it here, I came to love it. And uh, it may not be an exaggeration to say that that hymn has gotten me through many dark days and long nights. And uh, I hope that you treasure it as well. Um, I might also suggest that the hymn we sang just before it, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, if you would learn and meditate on those words, those words too might come to be treasures one day that will guard your heart when uh, sorrows seem to overtake you all around. would ask that you turn with me to the book of Jude tonight. Jude, verses 16 through 19. Some of you will remember this is not our first foray into the book of Jude. I've preached through Jude before. But tonight, our aim is a little bit different. It is not that the word of God is different. It's not that the meaning of the words are different. But tonight, we're coming at it with a little bit different purpose from a little bit of a different angle. And so, God's word we find is often like a diamond. If you look at it from a different angle, its light refracts onto our souls in a new and fresh way, as God's word always does. And so, tonight, as we consider these verses, uh, we will be... Once again, striving to answer the question that we began looking at last week, where does disunity, where does divisions within the church come from? We began last week in James chapter 4, where James himself asks that very same question, where do wars and fights among you come from? He answered that question in two ways. He said that first, wars and fights come from your desires for pleasure. The, the lusts that war within your own bodies, your own hearts, your own minds. It's the first source of disunity. The things that will make us fight with one another. The, thing, the things that will make us covet what one another has. Will make us be jealous of one another. The other source that we looked at last week was our tendency to downtalk our brothers and sisters in Christ. To, to speak negatively about them. Um, often without them being around. Talking about the decisions they've made that we disapprove of, talking about all the things that they do that irk us in some way or another. Each of these sources of disunity are described by James as dangerous and divisive, unholy and unchristian. And so therefore, we need to take these things seriously. Conversations or covetousness that we tend to often think very little of, that we might even consider harmless, we saw last week, are not harmless at all. And so we need to be very careful in our self-examination not to downplay that which Scripture says is a threat, that which Scripture says will divide us. However, we know that those two things are not the only sources of disunity that we need to be aware of and guard against. We said last week that we would not be able to exhaust the full list of things that might divide me from you or you from one another would be impossible to, to go through and list every possible thing that could divide us. But we do want to be careful to see what Scripture says. And so tonight, the author of Jude lists at least four more potential sources of disunity that we need to consider. And so then I would ask, if you are able, that you stand with me tonight 
in honor of the reading of the word of God as we read verses 16 through 19 of Jude. There Jude writes, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts, These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. may be seated. Let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we thank you this evening for the great truths that we have already proclaimed in song. It is such a blessing to get to stand together beside our brothers and sisters and, and sing words that Testify to your goodness, to sing words that remind our hearts of how faithful you are to us, even, Lord, when our souls are unsettled, when we are walking through darkness. Lord, we often need to be reminded of these things. And so, Lord, I pray that we would continue to meditate on what we have already proclaimed, and that as we turn now to your word, that you would remove any remaining distractions from our hearts and minds, that you would help us to be single-minded in our focus on what your word says. Lord, I acknowledge that in my weakness, I'm limited in, in my abilities to fully exhaust your word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would overcome my own insufficiencies, that you would give hearing and understanding to those that have gathered here tonight to hear your word taught, that you would keep my lips from error, and that you, Lord, would be glorified through what we have to say tonight. Help us to understand, Lord, that your word, as we approach it, can be a terrifying thing. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and as such, Lord, it sometimes will draw blood. Lord, I pray even now that if we are convicted tonight, not because of what I say, but because of what your word says, that we would be quick to repent, and that we would find consolation in the mercies of Christ poured out for us on Calvary. And Lord, I pray that if there are those here that do not know that consolation, even tonight, if they have not yet embraced the freedom that Christ provides through his cross, that you would open their hearts, that you would lead them to call out for mercy, Lord, that you would confirm in them your salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Before we get into these four sources of disunity that Jude discusses tonight, let me remind you of some context in Jude. Jude, uh, you may remember, is writing to the church to urge them to contend earnestly for the faith because their faith, our faith, Christianity itself, 
was being jeopardized by divisive and ungodly men. Jude identifies the characteristics of these men and the danger that they pose to the church. In verses 16 through 19, he is marking out the four activities that they are participating in that are proving to be particularly problematic. Throughout his book, he's, he's clear in describing the damage that they're causing. He's clear in describing the, the danger that they pose to the church, but he describes them in metaphoric terms as um, raging waves of the sea or uh, rocks that will shipwreck others or, or clouds without water. He, he uses this metaphoric language to describe them, but here in these verses... He describes their activities in very concrete terms so we can mark them out and identify them, identify these people that are causing divisions within the church, that are are jeopardizing the faith that had been handed down by the apostles. He says in verse 19 that these people are causing divisions, and it's by these four activities that they're causing these divisions. Notice how he begins this section by saying, these are. These are, these divisive people are this. In other words, you can spot these condemned, ungodly, divisive men and women by noting these activities. This is how they will make themselves known to you. And so what are these behaviors that we need to be on the lookout for, that we can identify those who are dangerous to the unity of the church? What is it? Is it it, uh, starting quarrels in the church? Is it being physically aggressive with other people? Is it disputing over different things? Well, it's a bit more simple than that. You see, first, Jude says that these are grumblers. They grumble. Now, grumbling doesn't seem like such a big deal to most of us, especially given the language that Jude has already employed about these people. Look up in verse 15. He says, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He, he thinks these men are ungodly if you don't get it, right? He, he, he's accusing them of blasphemy. He's saying that these are wicked people. They are ungodly. They are the exact opposite of what a Christian should be. Jude says they are condemned, that they are relegated to the blackness of darkness forever. And so we might think, whoa, these are, these are some pretty bad sinners here. What do they do? They grumble. They grumble. We tend to downplay the sin of grumbling because I think it's one that we are particularly fond of. When we think that we're getting the short end of the stick, what do we do? We, we grumble. When we think that we are doing far more than our fair share of the work and that somebody else is not pulling their weight, we grumble. When we don't think that we're getting the attention we deserve or that someone isn't listening to our grand ideas, we grumble. The word itself in Greek sounds like what it describes. It's an alliterative term. It's gagusthai. One commentator says that this type of grumbling is a low murmuring, grunting like a fat swine. Pretty much sums it up. We are displeased with our circumstances, with what we see going on around us. But rather, when we are displeased, then 
going to our brother and sister and discussing the matter with them civilly, we murmur. We murmur and grumble in hushed voices, in dark corners, grunting about all the injustices that have been done to us. We scowl at the supposed perpetrators of that injustice. And nobody's exempt from our grumbling. It could be the deacons. It could be the pastors. It could be the youth. It could be the seniors. It could be this family. It could be that individual. And as we grumble, we infect our audience with our divisive poison. We see that grumbling, not just noted here by Jude, but also noted by Paul, is something that we need to be very aware of and very careful of. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 to see Paul's warning about grumbling. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, the New King James Version here translates the word to complaining. Do all things without complaining or disputing. But in Greek, it's the same word that Jude uses for for grumbling, gagusthai. He urges them to do all things, all things without grumbling or disputing, without grumbling or complaining. So that, what's the end result? That they might be blameless. Do all things without grumbling, you'll be blameless. Do all things without grumbling, you'll be harmless. Do all things without grumbling, you'll be without fault. Shining as lights in the midst of this generation. This is a high standard to strive for, but it also means that the inverse is also true. If you do all things while grumbling and complaining, then you won't be blameless, you'll be blameworthy. You won't be harmless, you will be harmful. You will be at fault, and you do not shine as lights when you do all things with grumbling. And so then we see from Paul and from Jude that the attitude in which we do a thing is the difference between honoring the Lord with your service and being destructive to the church. And so we need to understand this. Two men, two women for that matter, could be standing side by side doing the exact same thing. They could be washing the dishes. Or for that matter, two men could be standing up here at different times behind this pulpit. It's important that whatever we're doing, we do all things without grumbling. But Those two individuals standing side by side, one doing their job with humility and joy, seeking to honor the Lord, the other doing that same activity while murmuring and grumbling about his work. The former is godly. The latter, we see, is devilish. See, they can do the exact same activity, standing side by side at the exact same time. And it doesn't matter what the activity is, whether it's washing dishes or preaching behind the pulpit. 
Paul says to do all things, all things, without grumbling or complaining. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Are you doing it without grumbling or complaining? The attitude in which they do it makes all the difference. In Philippians here, Paul even sets forth his own suffering as an example. He knows, as he indicates here, that he is likely nearing death. And yet, does Paul grumble? No, what does Paul do? Paul says, I rejoice with you. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Isn't that great? I want you to rejoice also with me. Don't grumble in your circumstances. Rejoice. Rejoice. Even if you are facing down death, praise God. Death is not the end. Paul does not grumble despite his circumstances. And in the same vein, he urges the Philippians and he urges us to do all things, all things without grumbling. And so here we are warned. When we hear grumbling taking place, we are witnessing the seeds of division being sown in the church, in the heart of the one grumbling, in the ears of the one hearing the grumbling. The second attribute that Jude lists here of ungodly men is that they complain. Now this is very near to grumbling. But we're not always so subtle with our complaints. You grumble in hushed voices in dark corners. You complain often right out in the open. When we complain, we find fault with either God or man about our circumstances. And we once again, like we saw last week, place ourselves in the judge's seat. Because what is complaining if not saying, I know better than someone else what my circumstances should be, and they're not that. So someone is at fault. I might blame my brother or sister. I might blame God. But one or the other, somebody is at fault. I am judging. I am condemning. I am complaining against them. We are displeased. And our displeasure must be voiced so that others can validate it with hearty affirmations. That's what complaining is. We decide... I'm unhappy. I want you to know that I am unhappy. And I want you to pat me on the back for being unhappy because I want you to recognize that my complaint is valid, that I'm right. That's why I'm complaining. Paul likewise warns us against such complaints. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, Now these things became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
Paul here lists the sins of the Israelites in the wilderness. He says they lusted after evil things. They committed idolatry. They committed sexual immorality. They tempted Christ. And right alongside all of those sins, they complained. They complained. Folks, do not be deceived. One of the devil's biggest lies is to tell you that your sin is no big deal. You don't have to worry about that sin. It's a little sin. Everybody does it. You don't have to worry about that. God will overlook that. It's the same lie he told in the garden. Little by the fruit won't hurt you. What's the big deal? But you can see right here in God's word what a big deal a little complaining can be. What other sins are listed right alongside of it? Idolatry, lusting after evil things, sexual immorality. Now most of you in here, I would hope, I would hope this is true of you. You wouldn't dream of participating in those sins. You wouldn't dream of cheating on your spouse, having an affair. At least, again, I hope so. You wouldn't participate in homosexual behavior. At least I hope so. You find those things repugnant, and rightfully so. Yet, what will we do? We will get into our little groups with our friends and we'll complain about this or that. We'll note how differently we would do things or how unfair something may be or how we wish that our circumstances were different. Oh, we're quick to condemn those other more distasteful sins, right? The sins that we label as the big ones. The sins that we can look down on because we don't commit them. But are we willing to see this great log in our eyes? Lest you think I exaggerate here, look at the end result of complaining versus the end result of these other sins. What was the end result of sexual immorality? Well, 23,000 fell in one day. What was the end result of tempting Christ? Well, they were destroyed by the serpents. What was the end result of complaining? They were destroyed by the destroyer right alongside all the rest. There is no distinction here. Which sin is worse than the other? The Bible makes no distinctions. And so then, Paul warns us, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We have to be very careful with what we say. Now at this point, I do want to make a couple of caveats because you may be wondering, is it ever okay then? Is it ever okay to recognize that things aren't how they should be? What if my child is sick? What if I don't have a job? What if my spouse has cheated on me? Are you saying I can never let people know that I'm troubled by these things? Well, not at all. In fact, the Bible is full of lament. It's full of people acknowledging that their circumstances are not what they should be. As a matter of fact, the the hymn that we just sang, Be Still My Soul. Why do we need to say to our soul, be still? Because often things are not as they should be. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 tells us, Therefore, humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Notice the difference though between this and complaining. We begin 
here in 1 Peter by humbling ourselves. The complainer begins by exalting themselves. Right? We don't demand what is ours by right, but we request what can only be ours through God's grace and then casting our care on Him. There is a huge difference. There is a world of difference between complaining about God or our brothers and sisters in Christ for that matter, and bringing your complaint to God. If you read through the Psalms, David often brings his complaint to God. He he laments the circumstances that he's in, but he lifts it up in prayer, pleading with the Lord to deal mercifully with him. God wants to hear our concerns and our cares. And he's given us brothers and sisters to help bear one another's burdens. It's my obligation to you, your obligation to me, to help bear those burdens. So it's not that we can never be open and honest about our circumstances. But we need to share that information with humility. Not complaining about God or complaining about one another. Now one other qualification I'll make here just to make sure that I'm clear and you're not hearing something that I'm not saying Please do not hear me saying that this means that you can never ask a question of the leadership of the church. The congregation is obligated to hold the leadership of the church accountable. But it must be done according to the biblical standard. They're not to be murmured against, gossiped about, complained about. If they are in sin, they need to be confronted. That includes me. If they are acting unwise, they should be questioned. The questioner then should be willing to hear the answer. The fact that we are not to grumble and complain does not mean that we will never have differences. It doesn't mean that we'll never disagree with one another. But when we do, let us resolve to handle our differences not as the world does. Not with grumbling, not with complaining, not with hushed murmuring but in a God-honoring manner, according to biblical standards. And as we do so, we will continue to march forward together in unity, strengthened by our differences, not divided by them. And so we see that we have to guard against grumbling and complaining in these ungodly ways. Next on this list, Jude mentions lusts. Now, we won't spend too much time on this since we talked about it at some length last week. It's, again, those desires for pleasure. Jude is referencing not necessarily sexual desire here, and that's not out of the question. That's part of it. But he's referring to the strong desires of the flesh for something other than God. It's the same thing he re- Paul references here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that they lusted after evil things. This is what James warns us that we will fight and covet over. That we will ask improperly for things that we are not entitled entitled to. And so when we walk according to our strong desires, according to those lusts of the flesh, it will inevitably create conflict in the church. Because we are self-focused. We're pursuing our own desires rather than the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so finally here, Jude mentions one last divisive sin, and that is flattery. Flattery. 
The problem is none of us really like to call out flattery because we like it. Right? I, if I'm honest, I like it when people say good things about me. I like it when they come right up and tell me all the things that they like about me. I shouldn't. I shouldn't be so easily drawn in. My, my mentor um, once told me that you, you know that you're doing well when you treat flattery or undue criticism with the same indifference. You just let it kind of roll off your back. Trouble is sometimes discerning which is which. But flattery nonetheless is a mark of the ungodly. Often we want flattery to be true, even when we know that it isn't. And so when someone flatters us, we say, yeah, you know, I, I can see that being true of me. I, th- I think that sounds about right. You know, here, here, actually, if you could get this shoulder too while you're patting me on the back, I would appreciate that. But we need to beware. Because in Proverbs 29.5, we're told that whoever flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You see, this is what we need to know about flatterers. Flattery is never free. It's never free. There's always a bill that's going to come to you. Because the flatterer wants something from you. They are flattering you because they're expecting something back in return. They build you up so that they can garner influence with you, so that they can draw you into their corner, only to reveal later how much their flattery is going to cost you. It's a net that entraps you. And like a lamb to the slaughter, we go willingly because we like to hear good things about ourselves. So again, we might need to ask, does this mean that we should never say something nice to people? Of course not. But we should be able to encourage without flattering. And we should be able to know the difference. Encouragement often will affirm what God is doing in someone's life. What we observe the Lord doing and working in and through someone. So that the attention isn't just on them. Encouragement will refocus someone's attention. You know, often we get discouraged because we're focusing too much on ourselves. Right? We're, we're, we're becoming morbid in our introspection as we go over our faults and our flaws over and over again. And so we need encouragement to be reminded of what the Lord has done for us to take our attention, our focus off of ourselves and place it back on the Lord. Flattery will attempt to boost our egos. Encouragement will boost our faith. One is expected of Christian brothers and sisters and will strengthen the believer and will strengthen the church. The other is divisive and destructive. We need to have the good sense to embrace encouragement and reject flattery and to encourage one another and guard our tongues against flattery. We are warned not to give undue favor to individuals, to not be a respecter of persons, but flattery attempts to gain that undue favor. It's divisive because it places the interest of the individual above the interests of the church. The flatterer only wants to advance their cause, to have their day. The flatteree wants to think that they are something. And this person's 
really got a good eye for seeing all the good things about me. But we need to remember, folks, we are nothing apart from Christ. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. They're nothing. What could anyone flatter us for? Again, this isn't to make us feel bad. It it should be to build us up in Christ because we realize that though we are nothing, Christ has elevated us with himself into the heavenly places and he's given us an eternal inheritance in him, in him. That's where our joy, that's where our hope resides, not in anything we can accomplish on our own that we can be flattered for. And so flattery distracts from reality. Flattery takes our eyes off of the heavenly path and places it upon our own feet and very quickly leads us into the wide path to destruction. The serpent in the garden, once again, he flattered Adam and Eve. He suggested that they had it in them to be like God. Whoa, Adam and Eve, God, God's only keeping you from that fruit because he knows how awesome you are. He knows that whenever you eat of it, you're going to be just like him. He flattered them. He told them that God was actually holding them back from realizing their best selves here and now, their best lives now in the garden. You just eat the fruit. But you see, flattery divided man from God. Don't underestimate its power to divide you from one another. It is divisive. So when we look at this catalog of sins, Jude says that they are the sins of sensual people, people who cause divisions. If you want to know where divisions in the church start, they start with grumblers. They start with complainers. They start with people full of lustful desires. And they start with flatterers. This is what we have to be concerned about, church. This is what we have to be worried about. This is what we have to be on the lookout for. You see, we will wring our hands over what's going on outside the church. Which politician is more corrupt? Which one of them is leading us down a more dangerous path? Which new direction society is heading? What sexual perversion is threatening our Mayberry-esque vision of our community? Those are the things that we sweat about, that we worry about. But you see, those things aren't what Jude says will divide. No, when we entertain grumbling, complaining, lustful desires, and flattery, we are sowing the seeds and watering the sprouts that will tear this church apart at the seams. That's where the danger lies. That's what we need to be careful of. We would do well to notice, too, here, that most of the sins listed by Jude, as well as the one we talked about last week of down-talking your brother and sister, all are sins of the tongue. And behind most of the sins of the tongue is pride. Because what do we do? We exalt ourselves, we demean others. And so we believe that we have the right to complain. Because, look at me. I, the great one, have been wronged. How dare they wrong me? So I will complain. I will grumble. You see, we never have the right to complain about our circumstances or service. To do so is to question God's sovereignty, His goodness, and His wisdom. Instead, we ought to do all things without grumbling or complaining, as Paul says in Philippians. Working heartily for the Lord and not for men, as Paul says in Colossians. Knowing that our tongues are a restless 
evil, full of deadly poison and set on fire by hell. And they are able to burn down everything we love. I'm convinced tonight that we all have room to repent of these things. If not actually outright complaining, then certainly the pride that swells up in our hearts that tells us we ought to complain, we ought to grumble. James says that if anyone is able to keep from stumbling in what they say, they're perfect in every way. I'm not willing to proclaim myself perfect, and neither should you, for that matter. So when we think about this, we should consider, what have we said? Just assume that we have said something that doesn't live up to Scripture's standards. What have we said? Who do we need to go to and say, you know, when I told you this thing last week, last month, whenever it was, you know, whenever I, I complained, I shouldn't have done that. You know, whenever I down-talked my brother or sister, I really didn't have the right to do that. That was wrong of me. Will you please forgive me? We may need to go back and pluck up the seeds of division that we've already sown even within this church. Our great difficulty, though, is that this type of speech, it's our natural tongue. It's the language that we are brought up in. We do it instinctively. Most of us don't go around saying, all right, well, it's time for me to complain to someone now. Some of you might, and you need to stop that if you do, but most of us don't, don't, don't have that sense that, all right, we're going to get into a, a grumble now. You know, or, or I think I need to go flatter that person to get what I want. We don't think that. No, we just do it instinctively. Why? Because we see other people do it. And we're quick learners. We learn it from seeing people that we know do it. And we catch on. If I flatter them, I can get this. They'll be indebted to me. If I complain, well, people will take notice of me and I'll get what I want. And it becomes so basic that we don't even have those thoughts. It just happens. It sort of just falls out of our mouths and we don't even notice that it's happening. But we need to notice. We must notice because it will divide us. James says if we control everything we say that we are perfect. If we don't sin with our tongue, we're perfect in every way. We certainly need to be more guarded in our speech going forward. Remembering that only Christ, only Christ was perfect in every way. The good news for us is that that perfection is actually offered to us. It's extended to us in grace. To say that, yes, I know you have messed up with your tongue. I know that you've grumbled. I know that you've complained. You've flattered. You've harbored ungodly lusts in your heart. Christ didn't do any of those things. And his righteousness can be yours freely by submitting your life to him, by trusting in him alone. All our many egregious slips of the tongue can be forgiven because they have been paid for on the cross. When Jude ends his letter, he reminds the church that they ought to make distinctions. Some they need to have compassion on. Others they need to reject, they need to deal with, they need to get the rot out of their midst. Some they need to have compassion on. 
You see, there is mercy and compassion for those that are broken over their sins. For those that are wounded by the word of God that say, how could I ever have done such a thing? Oh God, please forgive me. There is compassion. But there is rejection of the ungodly that continue, as the commentator says, to grunt like fat swine, grumbling, complaining, murmuring. He warns us in Philippians. He warns us in 1 Corinthians. He warns us in Jude. There is destruction coming for those people. So if you are not troubled, you should be. If you are troubled, repent confidently. Repent knowing that there is mercy and grace plenteous enough for all in the cross of Christ. And let us resolve together never to be described again by the warnings that are issued in Jude. Let's pray. Lord, this evening we are thankful for your word. I know sometimes your word can be hard on us. When we hold it up to a mirror and we see our sin and all of its ugliness, sin that we maybe didn't even realize we were committing. Sin that we just thought was okay because everybody else does it. Lord, I pray that if there are those that have been wounded by your word, that you would bind them up and heal them by your word as well. That you would bring them to Calvary where they would see their sins placed upon Jesus' back as he bears your wrath. Not for his own sins, but for ours. As he bears your wrath for our grumbling, our complaining, our lustful thoughts, and our flattery. Lord, keep us from such sins so that our church might be strong, might be unified, might be resolute, in our mission to proclaim the gospel in this community and around the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.